is a spiritual battle. And although Satan's representation on earth actually comes through people, we do need to bear in mind that these are actually people whom God loves. They're people for whom Christ died. Oh, that's good. We've lost um, our connection altogether now. We're getting all the Wi-Fi in here sorted out as well in, in, um, in time. We've had a few little, little hiccups, but it's all coming together. Praise God. Well, you know, if, if that isn't... Oh, that's all right. It's um, all organised again. Thank you very much, Ainsley. It was um, quite a few months ago that we decided that today was to be the day that we were going to actually speak about... Uh, the armour of God. When we were doing our planning for the first six months of the year, we really felt that uh, towards the end of February was a good time to actually bring this message. And most people who have been hanging around church for a while have heard three or four or five or ten sermons already on the armour of God. And uh, the passage that I'm going to focus on from Ephesians is one which is pretty well known, I think, to most of us. It's uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and I'm going to read from verses 13 through to 18. I've got it split on the screen there so you can actually um, actually read it. So, and, and Jeanette of course um, alluded to this in her presentation for, for communion. And uh, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 6 of course is the last chapter and this is getting towards the end of the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the Christians in Ephesus. And uh, he's actually spoken about a whole lot of matters concerning the Christian life. And he's got one more point to make. So he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not in the power of our might, but in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There we go. We're fighting against the devil who uses proxies in the form of other human beings. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness, they are really multiple ways of naming the evil spiritual forces that we battle with in this life. The devil and demons, in other words. Therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Now I've underlined the word stand there, it appears three times, twice on its own and once with, uh, with, with. So that the encouragement there is that we would stand. And when we take a stand, essentially, we are defending something. When I take a stand about an idea, I'm defending that idea. And many, many times in my own life, I've been called to take a stand for God's truth. I spent 28 years working 
in public universities before I moved to Christian Heritage College. There were many, many times when I had to stand on God's truth. In fact, every now and then I, I really felt God saying, Rod, you have to explain to your students why it is you believe what you do. My, my professional field is economics. I've taught economics in universities for close to 40 years now. And so I used to warn my students that I was going to talk about these matters and gave them the opportunity if they wanted to, to opt out. Most didn't. And uh, when I actually obeyed the voice of the Holy Spirit and took that stand, I never got into any trouble. I could have been sacked for it. But of course, I only ever did it when I felt the Holy Spirit urging me to do it. And often as not, it encouraged those of my students who were Christians. And usually what I found was about 30% of the class would walk out partway through my presentation. But nobody ever actually complained. And so, you know, we're called sometimes to take a stand. It's quite interesting that that word withstand, the, uh, the, the Greek, is anthi, uh, sorry, anthistomai. Now, we actually get our word antihistamine from that. So any, anybody who's ever had hay fever or uh, allergies, yeah, right? When I went, I'm, I'm allergic to the whole of New Zealand. When, uh, when we moved to New Zealand in 1981, I got a runny nose and it didn't stop running until we left in 1993. <laughs> There's a lot of pollen in the air in New Zealand. They, they grow a lot of grain, of course. We were living in Christchurch, which is um, on the Canterbury Plains, and they grow a lot of grain there. And we also get a lot of dry winds that come across over the, um, over the Alps. And uh, I used to get a bit of hay fever. And in the end, I decided I needed some antihistamines because they fight against the histamines that are produced by those irritant pollens and dusts and other things that float around in the air. So this withstanding is a bit like, as it were, being uh, inoculated against some kind of uh, infection or some kind of irritation. And of course we know the very best medicine that we can take if we're going to stand for the truth of God is right here in his word. Amen. So this is not so much a, an encouragement to us to become aggressive with other people, but as an encouragement for us to be fully cognizant of that truth that we hold because that becomes the antihistamine to untruth that is coming to us in so many guises. Uh, most of us are, are interacting with media of one kind or another. I dare say not too many of us are watching free-to-air television these days, but there's so much television on demand, there is so much material which is streamed through social media like Facebook and so on. We're exposed all the time to messages that go against God's truth. So that, if you like, is the histamine that comes into our lives and can actually make us allergic to the truth if we're overexposed to it. But the antihistamine, the means of withstanding, is to take responsibility as individuals 
and make sure that we get a revelation of God's truth by studying his word. The uh, second half of our scripture, of course, is from Ephesians 14 to 18. And this is the bit that most of us, I guess, remember. And I'm sure that many of us can recall preachers in the past telling us, you know, every morning you've got to get up out of bed and you've got to put on the full armour of God. And I certainly am not against that at all. But here we go, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Now I do have a, an image here of a, a Roman soldier and uh, it's not the greatest image available on the internet but I'm very reluctant to use material that is copyrighted unless I've had copyright clearance. Even though we're relatively small, I do think we need to honour those people who create on our behalf, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, this one is actually um, copyright free. There are, if you want to go, just, just Google Roman soldier and um, look at the images that come up, there's certainly plenty there. But I think this is, this is sufficient for our purposes here today. This particular soldier here is a, a legionnaire. There were different types of soldiers. And the soldier being described in this passage is a legionnaire. This particular legionnaire is of fairly high rank. We know that because of the, the feathers in his cap, so to speak. Um, but in other, and, and the cloak. But in, in other respects, he's like an ordinary uh, legionnaire in the Roman army. Now, Paul and many in his audience would have been very familiar with the way in which a Roman soldier was armoured. I mean, he had Roman soldiers guarding him for, for much of his ministry life. So, and, and by the way, that was all pretty heavy, that stuff too. So a Roman soldier wasn't a puny bloke like me. They like had muscles and six-packs and all that sort of jazz. And I dare say if they were living today, they'd be going to the gym at 5am every morning. Um, I think Helen goes to the gym at 5am every morning. Uh, maybe next time we do this, we'll bring in some armour and she can, uh, she can model it for us. So what's the first element referred to here, which is it's the, the, uh, the, the belt of truth. Gird your waist with truth. So um, I didn't bring my pointer today because it's a laser pointer and it actually bounces off television screens and I thought it might damage someone's eye. But if you have a look around the belt, and you can see this kind of, it almost looks like one of the, you know those fly screens you get that are made of strips of plastic that um, you, you put in your door? Well, that, that was actually metal or leather, and so there was the belt, and for obvious reasons, there are bits and pieces down there you might uh, want to protect from, uh, from arrows and other things flying around in the air. But what is this truth? This truth is the truth 
revealed in God's word. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that this is a living book. This is so different from any other book that you can buy anywhere on the planet. And the reason is this. You can read it, if you want, as a novel. You can read it as literature. You can read it as history. But it becomes a living book when you read it with a heart that is open to revelation from God. And by revelation from God, I don't mean that God's going to show you everything that's wrong in this book and you're going to go off and write your own version and start up another religion or anything like that as some people have done in the past. What I'm talking about is this, that you get a revelation of the truth in God's word that goes so deeply into your being that you can never be shifted by circumstances or by what you might encounter in the media or by what anybody might do to you in life. That's why nobody can do this for you. And uh, you've heard me say this many, many times before. You can't do it by coming to church on Sunday. You can't do it by reading a few passages of scripture at Easter time. You really have to be committed. And look, I don't, I'm not saying that we have to make a really religious thing out of this, that you necessarily have to allocate three hours every day to be in the Word of God. When I first became born again again, and I'll tell you that story one day, I only spent about 15 minutes a day in the Word of God, but I got to the point where I was so addicted I could hardly put it down. And I, I promise you, if you open up this book with a heart that is open to what the Holy Spirit wants to show you, you will get revelation. And that's the kind of truth that Paul intends us to wear as a belt around our waist. The second element of the armour was the breastplate of righteousness. Well, we're born again Christians, you know, we're, we're children of the living God, we've been adopted into his family. I often counsel people, when you read the epistles, don't read them from your perspective, don't read them from the perspective of someone you might know, but read them from the perspective of God. I believe that on the whole, the epistles give us a God's eye perspective of his children. And we're righteous. It makes no difference how you might feel today. You might even have got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. You might be having a bad hair day. As far as God is concerned, you're righteous. You're righteous not because of anything you have done, except having made that choice to become a follower of Jesus Christ. He did righteousness for you. The Bible assures us that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. So this idea of a breastplate protecting our hearts and protecting our other vital organs that idea there is the idea of righteousness which has been achieved for us through the death and through the resurrection and through the ascension of Jesus Christ who is now seated with the Father. He's seated at the Father's right hand. And by the way, 
The Roman soldier, if he was right-handed, would normally have a, a much more muscular right arm than his left arm because that sword was about 58 centimetres long and it was a fairly heavy piece of equipment. Um, don't believe what you see in the movies of puny little people having sword fights. Most people that size would never even be able to lift a sword. I've lifted a sword, a full-size sword. I wouldn't be able to use it as a weapon, that's for sure, because I'm simply not strong enough. So this idea of the right hand, it's a hand of strength and it's a hand of favour. And that's where Jesus is. And guess what? We're seated right there with him. That's our righteousness. You need to have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. And of course, we've often talked about this idea of peace before. It's, it's perhaps one of these problem words in the English language that, that our language itself is not as expressive as the Hebrew or the Greek. But in most instances where, where you see the word peace in the Bible, it actually means shalom, that Hebrew word shalom, which is probably would be better translated something like, like wholeness or, or fullness. Because it means more than peace in the sense of an absence of any kind of disturbance or, or unquietness in us. It's fullness in every respect to be physically healthy, to be mentally healthy, to be financially blessed to be socially blessed, and of course to be spiritually blessed. All of those five areas, the idea of completeness in those five areas. So the reason why our feet need to be shod is that the enemies of the Roman soldiers would often put obstacles in their way. Now think about this. You're, 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 you're on the defensive you're coming up against, say, a barricaded uh, a, a city, like a city wall or something like that. And what's happening right now is that arrows are raining down on you. Well, that, that would be the typical scenario. You're focused on what's coming from above. You're advancing. You're walking. And so the enemy would actually put obstacles in the way to try to tri trip you up. If you got good shoes, and they, they had leather, they were more like leather sandals which were strapped up and some had a leather guard on their, on their legs. But if you weren't careful as a soldier, you'd get tripped up. The obstacle could actually damage your feet. It might be a sharp object or something like that. So you need to be well shod. And here we're being encouraged to shed our feet with the gospel of peace. You know, when Satan puts a stumbling block in our pathway, we've got the right shoes on. And so we won't fall over. We won't uh, trip up. And that, that stumbling block, that might be anger. Well, if we're shod with the gospel of peace, we're not going to react to the situation that might uh, cause us anger. Or something there, it might encourage or, or um, induce unforgiveness. Well, when we're shod with the gospel of peace, nothing can shake our spiritual or our emotional peace. And no matter how hard people try, they can't get us into 
a situation of unforgiveness. We're told to take up the shield of faith. And um, the, the reason why I know this guy's a, a legionnaire is he's got a big shield. Other soldiers had, had a much shorter shield. And one of the great things about this shield, of course, was that the soldiers could kneel, interlock their shields, so there was a barrier in front, and then the soldiers behind could put their shield up, and it was like there was a roof over their heads. And that protected them from a barrage of arrows. And, of course, there are some translations that talk about the shield of faith being able to protect us from every fiery dart that Satan fires at us. And uh, when we're talking about tripping up, I mentioned unforgiveness. There are a couple of others that I think are fiery darts from Satan. Uh, one is deception. It's so easy to be deceived. In fact, if you, you, there are lots of elements of the church which have actually been deceived by what I would call secular, secular humanism. So for example, just as one example, and I don't want to get too carried away on this, but there's no concept of social welfare in the Bible. And yet the church today is one of the most vocal supporters of governments providing social welfare to people. Now, I'm not against social welfare. The Bible never says it's the government's role. The Bible actually says we're the ones who are supposed to look after the sick and the weak, the foreigners, the unemployed, and the church did. In fact, it was the church that started all of these kinds of works, but over the last 200 years has given it all up. And it's the people who control the social dollar who actually control society. Who controls society today? It's the government. With thousands upon thousands of pages of new legislation every year. It is so easy to become... Look, you know with the, with the moonshot they had to actually correct the direction of those... Um, uh, the, the capsules, they had to do that every 10 minutes I think it was because you only need to be a tiny, tiny, tiny bit off the actual correct path and you're going to miss the moon by thousands and thousands of kilometres. And I, I actually don't think the devil is a big fat liar. He just has to twist the truth a tiny little bit and we go a tiny little bit off course and we find that ultimately we actually miss the goal by a long shot. So we have to be so well immersed in the word of God that we can't be deceived. I, I, I guarantee if I did a, a survey, 99% of you would have said, no, social welfare, that's what we need to be, in, you know, we need to be involved in that and the government ought to be involved in that. Well, you won't find that in the Bible. So if you know the Bible really well, you'll know what God's perspective is. And you know why God doesn't like social welfare? By the way, it, I'm not advocating that we get dumped social welfare. You can't do things like that overnight. And we can't force the rest of the world to agree to the truth which is in the word of God. But he doesn't like it because he knows that we need to work in order to be fulfilled as human beings because we're made in the image of God. We're made in his image. God works. If you don't believe it, look outside. Who is it who holds all the stars in space? It's actually God. So he works. 
We're like him, so we need to. But, and there are many, many, many other areas in which the church is so easily deceived, really because its leaders are not spending enough time in the Word of God, and they've been deceived by a humanist understanding. And it's not always consistent with a biblical understanding. The other two are unforgiveness. You've heard plenty about unforgiveness. I won't uh, labour on that. But I think another one is disappointment. That's another one of the fiery, fiery darts that Satan sends us. And you know what? If we did a survey in here today, I guarantee there wouldn't be a single person who hasn't been disappointed by something at some time in their life. And it's so easy for disappointment to turn to bitterness. And when we become bitter people, it's difficult not only for those around us to relate to us, but we find it very difficult to relate to God. So keep up that shield of faith. It's your protection against deception. It's your protection against unforgiveness. It's your protection against disappointment. And while we're talking about things like that, think about the helmet of salvation. What does the helmet protect? Protects our, our mind. And I, I think for many of us, you know, Satan, the, the first thing that Satan tries to attack is our mind. Why is that? Because the Bible tells us he's our accuser. It's almost as if sitting on that chair up there, and it, it's only there because I forgot to put it back, but it's as if sitting on that chair up there, you know, there's Satan and he's wagging his finger at me, telling me all the areas in which I've disappointed people, all the areas in which I've been deceived and quite possibly am deceived today. He's pointing his finger at me and telling me of all the instances where I've harboured unforgiveness. He's telling me I'm a dirty, low-down, rotten scoundrel. And it goes into my mind. He certainly tells a lot of Christians, you're a sinner. And we're not. We're not sinners. God doesn't see us as sinners. We were sinners. And that song we sang um, earlier today, I love that one, but when, when David and Ainsley uh, first came across that song, um, you know, All We Sinners sang, we sat down and thought about it. Is that the sort of song we're actually going to sing in our church? We had a look at the lyrics. And it's actually people looking back at the cross, understanding that post the cross... They're forgiven. That's why the chorus says, saved, we are saved. All the sinners were singing, saved, we are saved. When we're saved, we're not sinners anymore. Does it mean we, we don't ever sin? Not at all. But what it means is God does not see us as sinners because he assures us that once we were sinners, not anymore. Not from his perspective. And that's one of the most important things we have to convince, as it were, our mind of. And Satan will be sitting there, waving his finger at us, trying to convince us that we're all a bunch of low-down sinners. Because if we go around thinking we're just sinners, we won't have the capacity to do anything positive in the kingdom of God. And that will keep Satan very happy. Thank you very much. Let us turn now to the sword of the Spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, that all of these other elements of the armour were defensive in nature. But now we come to the sword 
which obviously could be used for defence purposes, but its main purpose was as a weapon of offence. I mentioned earlier this the particular sword, it wasn't a long sword, it was about 58 centimetres. It's about that long, I think, 58 centimetres. Would, would that be right, Danny? Bit, so I'm a bit short, am I? A bit short, yeah. About, so it's not a, it's not a, a big um, implement, but it was double-edged, so it was sharpened. Not only did it have a point, but it was actually sharp on both sides. So in, in, the, in the hands of a well-skilled Roman legionnaire, it was quite a weapon. I certainly wouldn't like to meet a well-skilled Roman legionnaire on a dark night. In Hebrews 4.12, we read, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. So this two-edged sword is used as an image in the word of God. And we're able to actually use it in spiritual battle. I think it's highly significant. And if we go back to the second part of that scripture, here we are, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. How do we do battle? They're praying always. So, you know, you read through this and you think, wow, here I am a soldier. I've got a sword. I can go and start dealing with people. And then we're told, no, hang on a minute. We put all this armour on for the purpose of prayer. So we, we go well armed, but the tactic that we use in our battle is prayer. And that word prayer there means all kinds of prayer. Praying always, it goes on to say a little later on, to, that we're to be praying in the spirit. And some people say, well, that means you've got to pray in tongues. If you're not praying in tongues, well, you haven't really got the armour of God on. And that, there is an element of truth in that. But that word prayer there encompasses all kinds of prayer. And it simply says, pray always. So the battle tactic, once you, once you have on your armour, bearing in mind that it's a spiritual battle, we're to expend our energy in prayer. So when someone comes against you who's opened themselves up to the influence of Satan, be that an, it could be an idea that they have, it could even be an action, our first response should actually be prayer. And I, I can remember during the global financial crisis when the, the, the terrible things that had been going on in large financial corp, and by the way, they still are, and uh, there's one large Australian bank that is now facing fines of tens of millions of dollars for ripping people off. Terrible, terrible sin was going on in financial markets that cost little people billions and billions and billions of dollars. In fact, I've got a chart that I show my students of the total fines that financial institutions have to pay because of the, the unethical things that they were, and illegal things that, was, that were going on during the global financial crisis. Well, the latest data, it's more than $20 billion. That's in fines. 
20 billion US dollars. That's about 27, 28 billion Australian dollars. Wouldn't you like to have the tithe out of that, eh? <laughs> but you know, I used to say to, to, to people who were getting really hot under the collar about this and critical and wanting governments to do this and to do that, I'd say, why don't you pray for these people? Can you imagine how good it would be if they all became Christians and they gave 10% to the church? Because many of these CEOs, they were earning 10, 11, 15, 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year. Can you imagine what could happen in the kingdom of God if those people got a revelation of the one true living God and made the decision to build relationship with him by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and accepting the Holy Spirit as their guide. Can you imagine? Well, I reckon if we really understood what Ephesians 6 was all about, something like that just might happen. And in a way, I can't wait for the next crisis. And, and a lot of people think there's one not too far away because I want to be on my knees and I want to be praying that these people would become Christians. There's been a CEO in the news just this week, the CEO of Australia Post, who resigned after a furore over his um, total salary, which was close to $6 million. He, he's a Muslim. Well, you know, we, we can get cranky about that and we can jump up and down and we can put um, posts up on Facebook and um, I follow a couple of conser fairly conservative um, Facebook groups and you'll see people ranting and raving about it. But I just reckon, pray for his salvation. Because he's going to be on a pension of nearly $2 million a year, by the way, from now until he dies, because he's on, he's on what's called a defined benefit superannuation scheme. So it'll be actually about $1.5 million. Well, pray for his salvation, because I reckon there'll be a church somewhere that could use a tithe of $150,000 a year. Plus, all of the offers. See, that's how God wants the kingdom to work. So in, we, can go to, we can go into battle. We can be well and truly um, uh, geared up with all of our armour, but our tactic is prayer. And you know what? If the whole church was to have an attitude like this and to pray, we just might see some great miracles happening and the kingdom of God being funded to the extent where it can do so much more than it does at the moment. Well, you've heard enough from me. I just want to show you a little cartoon. I ask you this question. 